Good evening. Hi. My name is Mike, and I will be your sermonator for the evening. We're going to talk about marriage. Today it's come. My continuing rant on Christian marriage. You know, we've always heard from the female side about how dating and marriage relationships are supposed to work, especially if you do your devotions from Cosmopolitan or Mademoiselle or Glamour magazine. There's always tips for the girls on how to relate to guys. And honestly, there's not a lot of guy magazines out there, first of all, and uh, they don't actually have tips for relating to women. But I did find some. And I thought I'd share them with you. So, gentlemen, if you're having a hard time understanding your wife, or women, if you're having a hard time understanding your husbands, then uh, I'd like you to listen to these, these rules. You want to understand each other better. These are from a man's point of view, and so I hope they help. They're all numbered number one because they're all equally important. Number one. Learn to work the toilet seat. You're a big girl. If it's up, put it down. We need it up. You need it down. You don't hear us complaining about you leaving it down. So put it up. Now, Mary's remark at that point was, yeah, but I don't want to fall in the toilet late at night when I go to the bathroom. That actually is a good point. So at night, gentlemen, put it down. Rule number one. Sometimes we are not thinking about you. Live with it. <laughs> Rule number one. Ask for what you want. Let's be clear on this one. Subtle hints do not work. Strong hints do not work. Obvious hints do not work. Just say it. <laughs> Rule number one, we tend not to remember dates. Mark birthdays and anniversaries on a calendar for us. Remind us frequently beforehand. Rule number one, most guys own three pairs of shoes, tops. What makes you think we'd be any good at choosing which pair out of 30 would look good with your outfit? Rule number one, come to us only with a problem if you want help solving it. <laughs> That's what we do. Sympathy is what your girlfriends are for. <laughs> oh, the women scum are hating me right now. Rule number one, if you think you're fat, maybe you are. Don't ask us. We refuse to answer. Rule number one. If something that we said can be interpreted in two ways, and one of those ways makes you either angry or sad, we meant the other one. <laughs> Rule number one. The relationship is never going to be like it was the first two months we were going out. Get over that and quit whining to your girlfriends. And the last rule number one. We are not mind readers and never will be. Our lack of mind-reading ability is not proof 
of how little we care about you. So if you're married and uh, you hadn't heard those rules, I think uh, those are some good ones. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of taking the guy's side, but trust me, later on in this sermon, I will come down on men much more strongly than I come down on women, which is what I normally do in cases of marital counseling. Because according to the Bible, in the most specific passage that we have on Christian marriage, the husband is somehow supposed to be in some way kind of, sort of, responsible. You could say in charge. Now this particular passage has not been read at marriage ceremonies for probably the past 30 or 40 years, ever since the feminist liberation movement really gained ground, because it uses the word submit. And that's something that most people, men and women, do not want to hear. So we're going to tackle what I think is one of the most culturally difficult passages ever tonight. It's Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18, going to verse 33. And it starts where you think, honestly, it wouldn't start. It starts where Leonor left off last week. Ephesians 5.18, starting like this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, why would I start here? This is actually one of those times where it benefits a person to go to seminary. Because if you're outlining this in the original language, you would see that Paul completes a thought in verse 32, which is not shown on the wall right now. Because verse 32 starts with a therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, it means that Paul is wrapping up the thoughts he's just got done expounding upon. So we can say that this begins a brand new thought. And so the passage on marriage that is most explicit in the Holy Scriptures begins with an entreaty to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not to be drunk on wine. How many of you have known marriages that got into a huge amount of trouble because people became too dependent upon alcohol or drugs? Raise your hands. Okay, that's a good number of people who have seen marriages begin to falter because people were depending upon alcohol more than they were depending upon the Spirit of God. Leonor talked last week about us being influenced by the Spirit in the same way that people who are drunk are influenced by wine or by too much alcohol. That when you're drunk, 
your inhibitions go down. You're more apt to do certain things that you wouldn't do if you were sober. The same is true in your fill with the Spirit. You are more apt to do good things you wouldn't do normally unless you were filled with the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God actually begins to indwell in you and control your thoughts and your words and your actions, things happen for the good that normally wouldn't happen if you were not filled with the Spirit. And diametrically better than what happens if you're drunk on wine. The relationships in Christian marriage begin with a joyful and grateful relationship with Jesus. The rest of this passage will not work without the first part. You've both got to be passionate about your relationship with Christ and indwelled with the Holy Spirit, or it just will not work for a Christian marriage according to the Apostle Paul. So if you're a single person and you would like to get married then if you're going to follow the advice here, it would be that you find somebody who is filled with the Spirit to the point where they sing songs in their hearts to the Lord. They are sold out. They are Jesus-freaking-crazy in some ways. They are in love with Jesus, male or female, because it's that kind of a person who's actually going to do the things in a marriage that need to be done in order to stay married and have a good marriage. Now, I know um, you've heard stats bandied about that divorce in the Christian church is at the same levels as divorce outside the church. There's a sociologist who is writing a, actually written a book. I just saw it on Amazon.com. I don't remember the name of it right now. But he's taken that whole notion to task. He's looking at it from a sociologist's point of view. You know, if you just take anybody who claims they're a Christian in the U.S. because they were, you know, raised in the church or because, you know, they go to church on Christmas and you say, okay, that person's a Christian, then maybe the divorce rates are the same. But what this sociologist is finding out is, is that for people whose lives somehow reflect a passionate relationship with Jesus, where you know, church community is a regular part of their lives on a, on a weekly basis, they're part of a community of believers, that uh, they actually read their Bibles with some kind of regularity, where they have a prayer life, where they actually talk to God, and they try to listen to what the Spirit may be saying back to them, that those kinds of people, if you consider those people the Christians, the divorce rate is much, much, much lower. Which honestly kind of fits my experience. Maybe it fits yours too. And then it's this filling of the Holy Spirit that enables us to submit to one another. Now, at this point, he's not even talking about marriage, he is talking about, you know, Alex. Maybe he's in a conversation with John. And, and, and John says something, and Alex decides, oh my gosh, that's right. I should do what John says. Submitting one to another. Or, or Leonor is in a con 
conversation with Lily. And Lily says something that Leonor never thought of before. And Leonor says, oh my gosh, I feel the Holy Spirit talking to me through Lily. I'm going to do what she says because I think God is speaking through her. It is because we love Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit that we even have the kinds of thoughts and the resolve that we would actually submit to something someone else said. Remember one time Mary and I were having a difficult uh, time in our relationship. We called our pastor and his wife. So Mary and I were on two phones in our home, landlines, and my pastor and his wife were on two phones in, in their home, landlines, and the four of us are having this conversation as Mary and I struggle to figure out our relationship. At one point, my pastor says, Becky, Mary, would you get off the phone for just a minute? I'd like to talk to Michael alone. So they hang up, and I was longing for some encouragement because, you know, it was difficult, and this is what he said, brother, you are in pride. And God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And if you don't humble yourself right now, you're never going to get through this difficulty in your marriage. And I'm going, like, oh, that's not what I expected. I had no idea that I was being arrogant. But you see, because I chose to submit myself to my pastor's warning, we worked through that issue, submitting one to another, in this way also, well, I'll get to that later on. What does the word submit mean here? Well, I've actually looked at the Greek. The word is hypotasso. And in Greek, you're going to be surprised, the word actually means to submit. <laughs> to put in subjection. To subject to subordinate, to submit, to be subject to. That's what it means. So, we need to practice this one to another. And the only way we can do this is if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you just blow the person off. It doesn't matter if they're right. It doesn't matter if that advice would save your life. I've talked to some guys pleading with them to stop drinking. Pleading with them to stop drinking. And they would not listen to me. They would not subject themselves, submit themselves to the words of a friend who cared deeply. And then I had to go to the funeral. You pray for people to hit rock bottom. Some people's rock bottom is two levels below death. Sometimes it's, it's that important to submit one to another. And the only way we can do that is if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to Leonor's message from last week about that whole idea. And now we come to the portion that has not been read at weddings for the last 30 or 40 years. Starting in verse 22. 
Wives, submit to your husbands, to submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Remember here that he is not saying every woman in church must submit herself to every man in church. This is a specific command for married couples, all right? In the context of marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Oh my gosh, this is such a difficult passage. Does this mean that wives must always lose every argument that they're in with their husbands? Is that what he's saying? Not necessarily. Remember this about submission. Submission is always voluntary. Submission is always voluntary. Submission is always voluntary. You cannot make your wife submit to you, gentlemen. It's her decision whether to submit to you or not. I mean, even when it comes to parents and children, you know, there's a story about the kid who didn't want to stand up during church when they were singing, and the father kept trying to get the son to stand up, and he didn't want to stand up. So finally the father grabs the kid by the shoulder, pinches him, pulls him up, and holds him there. And the kid's standing up because it hurts. But he says in his heart, I'm sitting on the inside. Because submission is always voluntary. Now, submission to God is primary when we're talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Remember where we started this whole passage. We started with being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, right? In other words, you do not break God's laws to submit to your husbands. You just don't. If you're married to a man and he asks you to do something that you know is contrary to the will of God, that's immoral, that's heretical, don't do it. Because your submission is first to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now here's the problem that is gaining some traction in our present culture. I don't know why. But when couples begin having problems in their sex life, very often it's the husband's suggestion, it seems, in our culture, that they look at porn together. They watch a pornographic video together. Like somehow this is going to help jumpstart their sex life. You would have every biblical reason I know of not to submit to that request. Even more troubling is this whole idea of polyamory. Poly meaning many, amory meaning loves. 
many love is an open marriage kind of a thing. I'm not just talking, like I've, I haven't talked about this with just a couple of people. It seems like this is becoming somewhat accepted after a while in a marriage where she can sleep with other guys and he can sleep with other women or he can sleep with other guys and she can sleep with other women. I mean, where it's kind of this open marriage. If your husband asks you even to do a threesome, do not submit to that request because your first allegiance is to the Lord. And the Lord would not want you to do that. There's lots of negative consequences, and I've seen them. I've seen them in marriages. There's negative consequences. You have no idea what could happen. It's devastating. I don't know that your marriage would survive it. This is not just a first century thing. This is a 21st century thing. And here's, here's the, the truth. The truth is there's no need for submission if you both agree. I mean, think about this for a minute. If you have the same mind about something, nobody's submitting. You both want to do it. So marry somebody who thinks a lot like you. Then you won't have to submit as much. One to another. You won't. It's really simple. Similarities that you have are like money in a bank. And differences that you have are like debts you've got to pay. And the question is, relationally, how much collateral, how much cushion do you want to live on? Do you want to just squeak by every month? Do you want to always be in debt? Or do you want to have lots and lots and lots of extra emotional currency because there's little conflict. Trust me, life is difficult enough. There's all sorts of pressures that will come at you from your jobs and from your neighborhood and from your, your extended families and you know, from life in general. You don't need conflict in your marriage. I don't care how hot you are for one another. Sometimes what you need is someone who's in your corner and thinks like you. So don't settle just because you're romantically attracted. That goes away after a while. What stays is shared values, similar character, those kinds of things that relationships build trust upon. Now, <laughs> As an example, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about my dad. My dad uh, and my mom were married for uh, 13 years before she passed away of a uh, burst aneurysm in her brain. I was 12 years old when my mom died. And then I was 16 when my dad remarried. Both of my moms 
were smarter than my dad. And he knew that. They were smarter with money, especially. And so dad pretty much told both my moms, you handle the finances. Tell me how much we can spend. Whatever you say goes. And he was blessed as a result. He didn't feel like he needed to take control and be the macho man who spends the money the way he sees fit. He's going, no, you know, I picked well. And, and he told me one time something that kind of wrecked my dating life. He said, Mike, when you're getting serious about a girl, ask yourself this question. Is this the woman I want to be the mother of my children? And I went, oh, God, why'd you have to wreck it like that? Because that put a whole new spin on the kind of person I wanted to get serious about. There was a character element involved here. Like, he wanted to know that he could go to work, leave her alone with the kids, and feel safe about how she would raise their children. In other words, he was acceding control for most of the day to my mother... And, you know, if my mom, either one of them said, you know, Andy, we need to stay home this Saturday and work on the house, my dad said, okay, we'll work on the house. There were not a whole lot of times when my mom was not calling the shots because my dad was so laid back and easy to get along with and trusted them both so much that there wasn't a need for submission. But when my dad put his foot down, this is what's happening. We are going to ground Michael from getting his driver's license for one year because he took my company car on a test drive without my permission. No matter what my mother said, she was not going to contradict that directive. She's going to support him even if she thought it was harsh, which I did. <laughs> so, so much for wives submitting to the husband. Let's go on to the, uh, the men. And uh, brace yourselves, gentlemen. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, that's really theological. I'm wondering, what does that mean if you're a husband, if you're a dude, if you're newly married and you're clueless, you're going like, what? Am I supposed to give my wife a bath? Am I supposed to make sure she wears white? What? I mean, do we have a Bible study every day? What, what does that mean? Well, he explains it. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives their own, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Hmm. 
Husbands are to love their wives. The word there is agape. Like Christ loved the church. Let's stop for a moment now and think about how Christ loves the church. Last time I checked, we as a church are fairly unsubmissive. (laughs) Well, first of all, we don't even take time to read His words, the Lord's words, about what He might want. Like, we're really bad at reading our Bibles. So we don't even know what He wants. So it's kind of hard to submit to the Lord when you don't even know what He wants on a regular basis. And then when you do know what He wants, and you don't like what He wants, very often we do what we want anyway. And what's the Lord's response to a church that is so rebellious? Well, last I checked, it was to die for her, to forgive her over and over and over again. Every time you mess up, every time you do that same sin over and over again where you know you've got an idol in your life and you're going to the idol instead of going to Jesus, forgives you over and over and over again. Oh yeah, at the same time, he put you into a family of believers, even though you don't deserve to be in a family of believers. He gives you life and breath. He gives you health. He gives you food. He gives you a job. He gives you a place to stay. He gives you transportation. He gives you friends. He doesn't take those away because you're a jerk. He loves you in spite of that. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So here's the deal. You can't love your wife unless she is being unsubmissive, the way that Jesus loves the church. So when your wife is pissing you off because she will not consider your minor requests for a motorcycle. (laughs) You have to love her and treat her as well as you would treat yourself. And it's only then are you even close to acting like Jesus loves the church. When she doesn't listen to what you say, when she does whatever she damn well pleases, when she spends your money in ways you don't want it spent, you are to treat her as well as you treat yourself. And when you do that, you're beginning to travel the same road that Jesus travels when He loves you. All right. You know, in this passage, honestly... If I had my choice, I'd rather be the woman. Because now, this is looking not like a lot of fun at all. (laughs) Gentlemen, if you will not stop watching the football game to talk to your wife for five minutes 
about something that she's been asking you to talk about for days, you are not going to die for her ever. You just won't. If you can't stop playing video games, if you can't take one of the three nights you spend going out to play magic and take her on a date, you are not going to even closely be prepared to die for her. Do you see what I'm saying? Living as a husband in a Christian marriage is a life of sacrifice, preferring your wife and her needs to yourself and your needs and your wants. The Apostle Paul is writing to husbands here. In the first century, this was scandalous. There were lots of biblical, I'm sorry, extra-biblical codes of conduct. In other words, the pagan world was awash with lists about how wives should act, about how children should behave, about how slaves should conduct their affairs. There weren't any lists about how husbands should go about their business because in the ancient world, what the husband said was the law. You were the head of the household. You were the pater familias, the, the father of the family. You had the power of life or death in your very words. If you said that one of your children should die and you killed your son, there wasn't a court in the land who would come and bring charges against you because you had the power of life and death over your children. And if you wanted to divorce your wife in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, all you had to do was say so. I divorce you. And she's out on the street with no means of support. And not a court in the land would make you do otherwise. So for the Apostle Paul to come up with these words is radical. Radical. Never been done before. Husbands, you got a responsibility. Like Christ has a responsibility for the church. What's more, Jesus will make sure that you pay attention to him if you're a Christian husband. Ladies, if, if you are married to a man and you know in your heart that he's going down the wrong road, but it's not immoral. Let's say he wants to do an investment in a company that his buddy is starting up and you're smelling danger and you say, don't do that. But he is firm. He is going to do it. There's really nothing in the Bible that's not an immoral thing to invest in your friend's company, right? This is what you have to do. Submit to your husband's conviction and then duck. Because if it's the wrong thing, Jesus himself will take a swing at your husband. And you don't want to be in the way when he does. He is faithful to make young husbands into his image. 
and he will chastise them for wrong decisions. But if you are standing in between Jesus and your husband, and you are not submitting, God's not going to take a swing at him because you're in the way. Duck. See what God does. Trust God. Because sometimes you're going to be right, your husband's going to be wrong, and he'll learn a lesson he needs to learn to be a man. And surprise of surprises, sometimes your husband's going to be right, and you're going to be wrong, and you will learn to trust your husband and God working through him. That's kind of the way it works. When Mary and I were considering coming to Denver. Well, let's put it this way. When I was considering coming to Denver, I was 40 years old. I, I really felt like this is the last chance I had was to come to seminary and to finally get into ministry. I, I had felt a call for ministry uh, for 20 years and felt like this was the last chance being offered to me. I knew the Lord was in it. No doubt in my mind. I went and talked to Mary. I said, honey, I think God's calling us to Denver. We've got to sell our home and uh, move the kids in with my brother and his wife. We won't have our own home anymore, but it'll be fine, really, honestly. It'll be great, and I'll go to seminary, and we'll spend all this money, and, um, you know, when I get out, I'll, I'll, you know, take the highest-paying job within the will of God. So... We were just talking to somebody about this a couple days ago. And uh, Mary said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not going to Denver. Now, you can imagine with my Greek mentality and passions that, that I did not take that very well. This started a, a war between us. It finally became pretty obvious that we needed to go to counseling. And so I talked to my pastor. He suggested a counselor. We went to see this uh, uh, counselor. And uh, the very first session, the counselor looked at me and said, Mike, you can't go to Denver. And I thought, what? God's calling me to Denver. She just won't submit. It's God's will. You should make her follow me there. He says, Mike, you go to Denver, and it's a one-way ticket to a divorce. Is that what you want? I thought, oh, crap. All right, all right, all right. You're a godly authority that's been placed in my life. Your marriage is in better shape than mine, so I guess I've got to submit to you, don't I? That's what I thought. And so I did. I did. I stopped talking about Denver. Mary was overjoyed. In fact, if you asked her this, she would say that inside she was doing a little dance that looked like this. I won, I won, I won, I won, I won, right? She won. And then she stopped short And thought, what, what, what if God really is calling us to Denver? When we're 80 years old, I don't want to see my husband turn to me with a crooked finger saying, You never let me go to Denver. 
I could have been a contender. I could have been a pastor. So, unbeknownst to me, she had this little conversation with the Lord, saying, look, Lord, if you want us to go to Denver, then you've got to woo me, old-fashioned woo me. Every day I want something from you that draws me to that kind of a life change. I don't care how you do it. So she uh, began paying attention, and then, you know, she'd be talking to a bunch of women, and then one of the women would say, oh, I have... A sister lives in Denver, and she loves it there, and the weather's so great. Or she'd be driving down the road in her car, and on the radio would pop up Rocky Mountain High by John Denver, which hadn't been popular for 20 years. Things like that. Over and over again, unbeknownst to me. Meanwhile, I am pouting and sulking, and muttering in my prayer life to the Lord. Until one day, we were sitting up in bed. She turns to me and she says, Honey, I think we need to move to Denver. I go, Really? She goes, Yeah. I had a for sale by owner sign in the yard that day. <laughs> and let me tell you something. We needed to be together on that decision because when we came to Denver, things were not easy. I mean, we had, Mary no longer had her own kitchen, no longer had her own yard. We didn't have any health insurance. I didn't have a job. She didn't have a job. I mean, life was difficult, and we were spending money at the seminary because classes cost money. We needed to be together. And God knew that. And so, you know, what I'm trying to say is it works out if you're both submitted to the Holy Spirit. If you let the Holy Spirit fill and control you, then this whole marriage, submission to one another, submission to others, thing works. So make sure your fiancé loves Jesus more than he or she loves you. If you're not married, you're looking for someone to marry, you want to get married someday, marry a Jesus freak for crying out loud. Somebody who will submit to Jesus when the going gets tough. There should be great joy in your relationship as you sing to each other about the awesomeness of God on a regular basis. For Mary and me, that's kept us together. We'll tell you that if it wasn't for Jesus, we would not be married now. Women expect at least as much trouble submitting to your husbands as to the Lord. I mean, at least with Jesus, you're always wrong. You know, you know that you're always wrong with Jesus. But with your husband, you know, there's some question. <laughs> yeah. So that should be your desire to submit to your husband as he follows the Lord. If you cannot trust the man that you want to marry to submit himself to the Lord, then maybe you shouldn't marry that person. Ask yourself if you're spiritually ready to be married. Maybe, maybe, 
Maybe you're not even ready to be married to Jesus. You know, I mean, like, you don't want to do anything, he says. That's an indicator. Maybe it's time to grow up a bit before you get married. Get your own problems figured out. The healthier you are, the healthier you and your spouse will be. Men, expect to sacrifice your life and nothing less for your wife. If it feels like this is going to be a duty uh, and not something you're going to do willingly, then maybe you're not ready to get married. Maybe you should save some woman that hassle. Seriously. Leave her alone. She's happier without you than she is with you. Or if, if you can't see yourself laying down your life for this woman, maybe she's not the right woman for you. I, I don't know the answer to that question. But it should make you stop and pause because your job description is to die willingly. And our example in all this is the Lord Jesus Christ who died willingly for us, who loves us perfectly. To him we are all a bride. And so that we remember the kind of sacrifice that he made for us and that he makes for us, I would say, on a daily basis. He gave us something to remember him by. We call it communion where we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember what He has done for us because we are so loved by Him. That He, like a perfect husband, willingly gives His life for us and would do it all over again if He had to, but He doesn't have to. When we take communion, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And we anew should commit ourselves to submission to Him through the Holy Spirit. We should say, Lord, what is it you want us to do today? How should I think about this? Lord, take over my mouth and my, my tongue. How do you want me to speak to this person? Lord, what can I do with my hands? What can I do with my feet? How can I help this person? Because you have done so much for me. Make me your hands. Make me your feet. Make me your tongue. Put your thoughts in my head. So today when we take communion, let us remember that our hope for marriage is in following Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord God, you've given us your Son as an example, as much as he is a Savior. Help us to love one another, to submit to one another, Lord, as you and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are in perfect submission to one another. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.